Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Live for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Thank you, Dr. Peterson, for coming on. Dr. Peterson um, is a, a fantastic physician uh, affiliated with the Cleveland Clinic, and uh, she is an expert in genomics of breast cancer. Uh, uh, you know, I've known her for many years uh, through the City of Hope course. Uh, she uh, has significant expertise in chemo prevention. Um, you know, Edie brought up when we were talking about, um, you know, new topics, uh, that this would be a really nice one. And uh, she immediately came to mind because of all of her great work in this field and past presentations and things. So uh, we also have Shelly, uh, thank you, and Edie. But, uh, you know, if we have uh, some people on today. So for sure, if you have any questions, uh, definitely, you know, encourage you to unmute yourself. Um, but if you want to just send questions to Shelly, we can just, you know, triage those as normal. So. Uh, thank you, Dr. Peterson, for coming on. Uh, we're so lucky to have thank you. Thank you for and having I, me. I feel embarrassed that, uh, you know, we have a, a broken system today, but we will tune it up Oh, soon. no worries. No worries. <laughs> yeah. So, I, um, yeah, however um, you want to walk through things, um, you know, I, uh, we invited you on, um, you know, love your expertise, your opinion on, um, you know, how you go about um, you know, training people and taking care of patients with, um, you know, at high risk for breast cancer, um, you know, when it comes to chemo prevention and the, the you know, it's, it's a complex topic. Um, you know, there, there's some things that have been around for a while, but, you know, it's been changing over the years as well. So it's great for just an update on, on how you approach it and the kind of things that are top of mind. Thank you so much for having me. And do you see a whole slide? Yes. Okay. You don't see the, the speaker view. So uh, I run the high-risk clinic at Cleveland Clinic, and we see a lot of high-risk patients and talk about chemo prevention day in and day out. Uh, you know, it's vastly underutilized and, and poorly understood, I think, by many. And there are some new areas in the field, actually, uh, that will be interesting to discuss. So we'll review breast cancer risk assessment in general in the primary care setting to identify those who are best suited for chemo prevention, provide an evidence-based overview of endocrine therapy for prevention, identify barriers to uptake and offer strategies to address these barriers, and also explore novel ideas about prevention. With a little help from a friend, I put together this slide, which is a little busy, but once you get into it, I think you'll enjoy it. It's sort of the the pathway that we go through when we see a patient in high-risk clinic. You know, the first question we always ask is, is, is their personal or family history suggestive of a hereditary cancer syndrome? And, you know, that's first and foremost. And if so, they are referred to genetic counseling if they have a pathogenic variant in a highly penetrant or moderately penetrant gene, we refer to NCCN guidelines. And that does also include preventive medication as an option. And we'll talk about which genes it's most suited for. We cannot leave genetics out of this discussion. In terms of those who either test negative or in whom their, their pedigree is not suggestive of a hereditary syndrome, we resort to risk modeling uh, at the current time, Tyrocusic version 8. And according to ASCO guidelines, if the 10-year risk is 5% or greater, in general, the benefits of preventive therapy outweigh the risks. Um, yeah, and this worked its way into the NCCN uh, risk reduction as well this year. I think this oh, right. was a new new addition, right, Edie? You might know off the top of your head. 
If I and recall correctly, it was a newer edition where you have the five-year risk of uh, 3% is noted in a footnote in NCCN, but the 10-year risk of 5%, I think, is a new addition to NCCN, yes. And so you can, uh, in the upper right corner, select risk options and put a 10 instead of a 5, and just it'll default to a 10-year risk on your TC, and that's very helpful. And if you don't reach that threshold of 5%, uh, it's, uh, you can consider doing the Gale model. And per USPSTF, if the Gale model five-year risk is 3% or greater, generally the benefits outweigh the risks of preventive medication. Of course, with NCCN, it's recommended that preventive medication be discussed if anyone has a five-year risk of greater than 1.67%, which is the average risk of a 60-year-old woman. But if we did that, that's all we would do all day. <laughs> so we kind of look for the, uh, the patients who really probably will benefit the most. Um, this is and, and I, I'll just say I was so happy to see some you know some guidelines come out around that three percent um, over time because it was very confusing. I mean, after yes. Star and everything, um, you know, I, I'd be in clinic myself looking at people that had a you know two point four percent risk, and you feel you you felt really obligated to say something, but at the same time you were you were kind of like ah this is you know they're probably not going to take it, but you just you had that kind of. Right. obligation. So it's so nice to have a little bit more of a firm guideline because I know people were even using like 4% uh, five-year risk, so which seems very high. Uh, so very 3% high. seems pretty appropriate. Well, and I'd like to stress too that, you know, you, you're eligible for genetic testing. You're eligible for MRI screening. The choice to offer preventive medication is a judgment call, and you don't need to be eligible according mm -hmm. to these criteria. Those are simply thresholds that are suggested at which the benefits likely outweigh the risks. You'll have younger patients that have a mother and sister with early onset breast cancer that do not meet that threshold, and clearly, if they are motivated, should be offered preventive medication. Um, 35 and older is where it's been studied, but oftentimes with patients between 35 and say 45, they may not meet that threshold. So first we obviously look um, for red flags for uh, hereditary risk, and, and you're all familiar with those. I won't belabor those at that point. And I'll start with a case. This is an actual case, not a picture of the actual woman, but an actual case of a 52-year-old perimenopausal woman who uh, has been on estrogen for the past year for vasomotor symptoms. She had a hysterectomy four years ago and her family history is insignificant. On her screening mammogram, she was called back for bilateral asymmetries. You can see how dense her tissue is. On the left, she was found to have a cyst and a uh, right stereotactic biopsy showed classic and pleomorphic LCIS. And so you can see uh, how difficult it will be to follow this woman. And an MRI was ordered. Of note, uh, a recent uh, cohort that was examined by Warner in Canada, a large cohort looking at patients screened with MRI, noted that up to 20% have uh, false positive findings on their first MRI. That kind of stabilizes out over time. But we did see the area of biopsy classic pleomorphic, classic and pleomorphic LCIS on the right, and there were benign changes on the left. And so um, she chose to have a right needle loc and bilateral oncoplastic reduction on the right did have florid LCIS, both classic and pleomorphic, and on the left had ALH and LCIS. So she has bilateral atypia and LCIS, is on hormone, is symptomatic with menopausal symptoms. What do we do? So this is what we do in our, in our clinics. You know, we're looking for patients um, 
we 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 talk to all of our patients about uh, lifestyle modification, achieving and maintaining ideal body weight, minimizing alcohol consumption, regular exercise, healthy diet, mammographic screening. We look for those that are uh, appropriate for genetic counseling, look for those that are appropriate for MRI screening. And what we're talking about today is preventive medication. Surgery is reserved for those at the highest level of risk. And preventive medications are just really, really underutilized. It's estimated that about 4% of all eligible women uh, probably take preventive medication. And, and there are barriers that exist that are potentially um, modifiable and those that are not modifiable. Um, physician time, education, and comfort with risk assessment and prevention is a real issue. Um, you know, appointment times are getting shorter and we are fortunate just to focus on breast, but in the primary care and OBGYN settings, it's very challenging. And then from the patient's side, it's viewed as, a, you know, a cancer drug and patients fear side effects, even if they haven't tried the medication. Um, in the state of Ohio, and I don't know what state's you are all in. We also have a very, um, very high rate of obesity, which is a, a big issue when it comes to um, blood clot risk. And so that's something that we consider as sort of a not a relative contraindication, but something to think about. Yeah, you know, and, and even, I'll say, Holly, you know, to your point about underutilized, I mean, it's it's like an afterthought, honestly, by mm -hmm. a lot of providers. I mean, unless you really like live and breathe high risk, people will immediately go to like, uh, you know, uh, bilateral mastectomy, and you're like, whoa, like, <laughs> you know, there's there's things in between. <laughs> so I and, know. And chemo prevention's a good yeah. excellent example. You know, so for the high-risk woman, you know, there, there's enhanced surveillance, chemo prevention, and risk-reducing surgery, and, and really all three should be discussed in the appropriate patient. Um, but in most high-risk patients, it's going to really be enhanced surveillance and a discussion about preventive medication. Even with the use of computerized clinical decision support tools, um, uptake Dr. is Peterson. just terrible. Yeah. Can I ask you a question, a quick question sure. um, that kind of goes along a little bit with what TJ just added? What are your thoughts about uh, using PRS with the risk stratification to help for prevention decision to do, um, you know, take uh, tamoxifen or reloxifen? Um, and you don't think I'm going to talk about that, Shelley? I am asking a question <laughs> from our wonderful audience. That will be discussed. So in my handy dandy little um, uh, vent flow diagram, the lightning bolts are where the PRS may further substratify risk or aid in clinical decision making. Uh, it can be incorporated into risk modeling to improve the discriminatory accuracy. It can substratify risk in gene carriers. It can help patients decide about enhanced surveillance and chemo prevention. So there's those lightning bolts, and we'll talk more about that um, more uh, later in the presentation. But that's Thank definitely you. something that I think is really currently the main uh, the main focus clinically where the PRS can be extremely helpful, and I'll I'll show you some cases in that regard. So in specialized high-risk clinics, we obviously have higher uptake rates of chemopreventive therapy, you know, because that's what we what we do day in and day out. In the premenopausal woman, uh, tamoxifen is the only agent that can be used. And in the postmenopausal woman, you can use the CIRMS tamoxifen and raloxifene or the aromatase inhibitors, exemestane or anastrozole. Only tamoxifen and raloxifene are FDA approved for prevention, uh, but exemestane and anastrozole are certainly ASCO and NCCN recommended. They just are not FDA approved. Um, 
these are the trials that led to uh, led to this as as a therapy. And really, where it where it came out of in the seventies and eighties in women who had breast cancer who were treated with tamoxifen, not only did they have a reduced rate of recurrence, but they had a reduced formation of new cancers on the contralateral side, and so it was postulated that it might be a preventive agent. And so in the nineties. The NSABP P1 or breast cancer prevention trial uh, recruited 13,388 healthy, high risk, both pre and post menopausal women, randomized them to tamoxifen versus placebo. And there was about a 50% reduction in both invasive and non invasive breast cancer in the tamoxifen arm. Uh, at about the same time, Raloxifene was being studied in the osteoporosis setting in, in Moore, Core, and Ruth, the studies that were looking at, at osteoporosis endpoints. And although uh, Evista or uh, Raloxifene was not the best osteoporosis medication, those women were not getting breast cancer as frequently. So that led to the STAR trial comparing tamoxifen to raloxifene in almost 20,000 postmenopausal women. And the results were equivalent after five years, but with long-term follow-up, the raloxifene provides about a 38% uh, risk reduction as compared to tamoxifen's 50% risk reduction, which tends to persist 10 to 15 years after one stops taking it. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's great. That's the great numbers for those that haven't seen those numbers. original trials. Yeah, that's where that, you know, cuts your risk in half all comes from. Cuts your risk in half. None of these have been shown to reduce mortality, but, it, you know, the morbidity from breast cancer is, is certainly a significant endpoint uh, to avoid. Uh, this trial out of Europe was confounded by 50% of the patients being on hormone replacement concurrently, and it only showed a 25% risk reduction. And these two trials also out of Europe, exemestane was compared to placebo in a three-year trial showing a 65% risk reduction. And anastrozole uh, was uh, compared with placebo over a five-year period, showing a 53% risk reduction. And so we'll talk about the pros and cons of each and the side effects and the serious side effects. There was a paper um, by Desensi out of, uh, out of Italy several years ago looking at low-dose tamoxifen in patients with breast neoplasia. And they used five milligrams daily over a three-year period and did show a 50% reduction in risk. This was a very small group of heterogeneous women that uh, were treated in very di different ways. And so um, it, it lacks, certainly lacks the, the power of these other trials. Um, but it can be used uh, if a patient is symptomatic on the 20 milligram dose or is unable or unwilling to take the standard dose. I'll sometimes use it in the perimenopausal setting uh, when I'm worried about the woman getting a lot of side effects from tamoxifen and stopping the therapy. Um, a paper has subsequently come out by that group suggesting that low-dose tamoxifen is not as effective in premenopausal women as in postmenopausal women. Mm. So that's a bummer because you know we really were hoping that it would be more appealing for young women to use uh, the low-dose, you know, as a starting point anyway. And you can still use it as a starting point. This was a real highlight from the uh, NSABP P1 trial, looking specifically at patients with atypical hyperplasia and LCIS. With atypical hyperplasia, the risk reduction was not 50%, but 86% risk reduction. And with LCIS, 56%, which did not quite reach statistical significance. 
But this is a real win for patients uh, with atypical hyperplasia uh, in terms of risk reduction is nearly as effective as risk-reducing mastectomy. So what, uh, what side effects do we see with these agents? The aromatase inhibitors, uh, really the, the main thing is a 2 to 7% loss in bone density. We don't see it an increase in, in blood clots or any type of other cancers, endometrial cancer, as you'll see with tamoxifen. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about cardiac side effects of all of these medications. Tamoxifen uh, in the uh, in meta-analyses is associated with about a 1% risk of blood clot overall, similar, similar to uh, oral contraceptives, and about a 1% to 3% risk of endometrial cancer. And so in postmenopausal women who still have their uterus, Raloxifene is really a preferred agent. Tamoxifen also increases the risk of cataracts in postmenopausal women. Uh, no special monitoring is, is uh, advised for either the eyes or, uh, or the uterus, uh, just an annual exam for each of those, uh, each of those organ systems. In terms of an you know annoying side effects, you know you're going to see hot flashes, night sweats, and insomnia more commonly with the aromatase inhibitors than these uh, serms, but this is also more common than placebo. Generally, tamoxifen and raloxifene are very well tolerated, as is exemestane. I would say much more so than anastrozole. Anastrozole has a higher uh, a higher risk side effect profile with the hot flashes, night sweats, arthralgias, vaginal dryness, much more common in that group. And we have seen as well 10 years of protection after uh, an astrazole course is complete. And so that's something that's very appealing to patients as well. In terms of side effects, you know, it's important to just ask your patients about vasomotor symptoms, arthralgias, and vaginal dryness, um, and because they they sometimes don't want to tell you, and it's interfering with their compliance. And and there are sometimes simple things that you can do to help. So it's just something to think about. And patient selection is key, as we as we talked about. Uh, only tamoxifen can be used in the premenopausal setting. In the postmenopausal setting, you want to make sure that they're doing well with menopause before you embark on something that may worsen their menopausal symptoms. Uh, I mentioned that raloxifene is safer in a woman who still has uh, her uterus. We look at fracture risk. We're looking more at cardiovascular risk. Endometrial cancer risk kind of goes along with uh, with venous, venous thromboembolic risk, and we'll talk about those risk factors and absolute contraindications to therapy. So in terms of tamoxifen and raloxifene, absolute contraindications are a history of a DVT or PE, thrombotic stroke, retinal vein thrombosis, TIA, or a known inherited clotting predisposition. Patients who are pregnant or who want to become pregnant or who are breastfeeding and concurrent use of warfarin or estrogen. We also think about risk factors for clotting, such as age over 60, obesity, and smoking. And I, I, I won't prescribe it to smokers. I try to avoid it in patients with a BMI over 30, although I will give it to patients over 30 premenopausal who don't have other options if they have atypical hyperplasia or LCIS. And women over 60 just need to be aware that their clotting risk may be slightly higher. Uh, Tamoxifen is teratogenic, so premenopausal women need to be on a reliable form of birth control. And there is some evidence that migraine with aura may uh, 
may increase the risk of stroke with uh, with SIRMs. And so I, I avoid it in that group. So what about prevention in gene carriers? You know, this paper by Hu and Couch in 2020 um, showed the, the clinical subtypes of breast cancer associated with different genes. And interestingly with BRCA1, we always think of BRCA1 as a triple negative gene. And that is indeed the case un under the age of 50. But you can see that the lines sort of overlap between purple and, and green. So the purple being triple negative and the green being ER positive HER2 negative. And in fact, as women age with BRCA1 pathogenic variants, they're more likely to develop ER positive HER2 negative disease. So it's not unreasonable to consider uh, preventive medication in bracket one carriers over the age of 50. Although BRCA2 and PALB2 have, a, have an overexpression uh, of triple negative breast cancers as compared to the general population, the predominant cancer is still ER positive, HER2 negative. And ATM and CHECK2 are nearly, all, nearly uh, almost always ER positive. And so they are, they are genes for which prevention can be very effective. Um, although it has not been formally studied. We have very yeah. little data on chemo prevention in gene carriers, mm -hmm. surprisingly so, because yeah. it's been around for so long and nobody's really done it. Yeah, and especially in ATM and CHECK2, I mean, this has been a hypothesis for some time. I mean, um, we had a, a paper uh, with Fergus uh, was the last author um, and uh, Carrot Mack, uh, Maxwell um, was a co-first author with me, and I know she's still been working on uh, looking at um, you know ER positivity caused by ATM and CHECK2. Um, we were even like still involved in getting some samples um, uh, over there, and then you know it just like you said. I mean, this is you, you would think looking at those curves that you know those. Uh, two gene carriers would just be extremely good candidates uh, for yeah. chemo prevention, but we just have to study it and show that it we really do does hold up. We have to study it and and prospectively look at at those patients. Yeah, I mean it it it, it makes sense, but it has the data mm -hmm. is not there. So this same data was validated um, this year by uh, the European. BCAT consortium in a multi-center case control analysis of the Bridges study, looking at 42,000 patients and 46,000 controls. And um, RAD51C and D and BARD1 were really primarily ER negative uh, predisposed to ER negative disease, particularly RAD51 C and D. I've seen other studies where BARD1 does have ER positive breast cancers, so that, that's a question mark. Um, BRCA2 and PALP2 had an overexpression of triple negative as we've seen before, and BRCA1 is the highest for triple negative, P53 with HER2 positive. Those are things that we've known before. So and you know, you know th those are common to the HR pathway, which is interesting. If you take a step back, you know those are, you know, what's really driving that triple negative is a lot of those uh, homologous recombination uh, pathway genes, uh, which you know ATM gets thrown into that category a lot, but it is kind of a um, you know master of all um, you know DNA repair to some extent. And um, you know, I've I've always been overall in my life, you know, studying ATM less impressed. Um, at times that it has a lot of HRD overlap. But yeah, again, I think there's still a lot to be worked out there. But, you know, clearly you don't see the same rates of triple negative breast cancer in ATM carriers. No, no. So, you know, based on tumor biology, you know, uh, you would uh, empirically focus on CHECK2 ATM, CDH1, which predisposes primarily to invasive lobular cancer, which is nearly always ER positive, PALB2, BRCA2, and BRCA1 over 50, and hesitate potentially with RAD51, CND, and possibly BARD1.
So the PRS may influence the decision to take preventive medication. And, uh, you know, as, as you know, when we test for uh, with multi-gene panel testing includes the highly penetrant and moderately penetrant genes, but uh, over 300 single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs have been identified that in and of themselves are associated with small levels of risk, uh, but in aggregate may significantly affect risk both in, in carriers and non-carriers, and may help patients make decisions. This is just a, a graphic of how uh, BRCA1 by itself confers a very high level of risk, and the SNPs are, are added. And we've uh, seen studies demonstrating that um, the PRS is, uh, is more effective in terms of risk stratification when combined with uh, traditional risk factor models, such as the Tyra Kuzik model. This is a study that Alicia Hughes published in 2021, looking at two validation cohorts. And you can see that the TC and the PRS both you know, performed fairly well, but in combination, there was really a striking difference in discriminatory accuracy in terms of risk prediction. So the genre study was kind of a pilot study done by the Mayo Clinic asking the question, does the PRS influence the decision to accept preventive medications in gene negative patients. They did not include gene positive patients in this particular study. So they evaluated the patient's willingness to take medication at the time of the standardized consult and then after receiving PRS information. And some people's estimated risk went down with addition of the PRS information and others went up. And um, it was, you know, fairly straightforward that those in whom the risk went down were less likely to take preventive medication, and those in whom the risk went up were more likely to take preventive medication. So back to our patient, her 10-year risk is 32.8%, <laughs> certainly well above the 5% the, uh, threshold, and her estimated life time risk with LCIS is 69%. And I think that's important to remember because LCIS used to be on, you know, lists of patients in whom risk-reducing mastectomy might be considered because this is very similar in terms of a risk level to a BRCA mutation carrier. But endocrine therapy is so effective in reducing risk um, that uh, that it's no longer recommended to have the discussion with a patient with LCIS about risk-reducing surgery. But if a patient has an absolute contraindication to medication or is unable to tolerate medication, you have to take this risk number quite seriously because it, it's, it's probably... Uh, pretty accurate. So with her, we could leave her on estrogen and we'll talk about, about why that may not be crazy, but it, it's crazy in her with pleomorphic LCIS, but we'll talk more about estrogen. Stop her estrogen and do nothing. Give her low dose because of her vasomotor symptoms offer her the PRS to help her decide or to promote adherence, uh, or just prescribe the standard 20 milligrams a day for five years, which is what she chose to do. But, you know, we're going to need to start thinking more about cardiovascular risk as, you know, in the setting of breast cancer risk. The, the, cardiologists really think about cardiovascular risk and those of us in the breast world don't think about it, I think, as much as we should. And in fact, um, many more women uh, succumb to cardiovascular disease or stroke than to breast cancer. And this important paper came out uh, in circulation, a statement by the American Heart Association um, really 
taking a, a new look at hormone replacement and cardiovascular risk reduction. And in fact, all-cause mortality is reduced by 30% when hormones are initiated in young menopausal women relative to placebo. And so we don't have, you know, we don't have specific uh, numbers on high-risk patients. But in women who choose to take hormone replacement, and the type of hormone replacement is important, and we'll talk about that, uh, the benefits may outweigh the risks. And may, in some women who don't have uh, neoplasia or LCIS, atypical hyperplasia or LCIS, may, may be actually a better choice. And so yeah, that that's is really an interesting. interesting. And there's different it, types of hormone replacement, you know, like uh, estrogen only, you know, combined uh, progesterone only. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about that. But, you know, the conclusions from this paper were, were that the evidence supports cardiovascular mm -hmm. benefit for menopausal hormone therapy initiated early among women with premature or surgical menopause, which is what we see with our bracket carriers. And within 10 years of menopause in women with natural menopause, i.e., you know, like from 50 to 60, the benefits, including lower rates of diabetes, reduced insulin resistance and bone protection, appear to outweigh the risks for the majority of early menopausal women. So this I think this is really a game changer. Um, and if you look at what actually reduces mortality, the only two things that have been shown to reduce mortality uh, in the Women's Health Initiative trial, the low-fat dietary pattern intervention reduced um, mortality, uh, and the conjugated equine estrogen alone arm reduced mortality mm -hmm. as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Women's Health Initiative. And I, I, I emphasize that it's not really the estrogen only arm, but it, it clearly was conjugated equine estrogen. And we don't know whether estradiol is equivalent to that to a conjugated equine estrogen um, in its efficacy or prevent potentially preventive uh, qualities. So this study was, was really done, it was probably the largest women's health study ever done in this country with a budget of like $700 million. And it really was meant to look uh, at the question of whether hormone reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease. It was not really meant to look at, at menopause or, you know, uh, at, and it really wasn't even given to women uh, who were postmenopausal at 52. The average age of entry into the study was 63. Um, many had risk factors for cardiovascular disease because that was really their primary aim. 50% smoked, 40% were obese, 40% had hypertension. And, you know, 21% were in their 70s. You know, I mean, it, this yeah. is absurd that you would start hormone replacement at that, at that age. And so, as we all know, in 2002, it was stopped early because there was an increased risk of breast cancer and stroke that was demonstrated. And, and the entire country stopped using uh, estrogen and progesterone. But if you look at the absolute risks by age, these are the number of, of events per 10,000 women per year. And when that number is less than 10, 10 or less, it's considered a rare event. So in the 50 to 59-year-old age group, and even in the 60 to 69-year-old age group, combined estrogen and progesterone, which in this case was, uh, was Provera. Um, and that's important because micronized progesterone is not felt to have the same breast cancer risk as, uh, as Provera. 
And these are all rare events, uh, coronary heart disease, breast cancer, and stroke. And the only event that was not rare in these age groups was the small risk of blood clot that I've described. If you look at the the Premarin-only arm, the estrogen-only arm in hysterectomized women, uh, there was actually a lower risk of both coronary heart disease and breast cancer in women 50 to 59 and 60 to 69. It wasn't until they got into their 70s that you really saw an increased risk of breast cancer or coronary disease. In their 60s, you do see an increased risk of stroke. Yeah, so these are great. Is, I've never, I've never really like looked through these um, figures. Yeah, very impressive. I mean, it was a just a sentinel study. I mean, I was in medical school when when it mm -hmm. came out and really stopped. I mean, everybody was on hormone replacement. At least everyone was on hormone was before on. that. Everyone yeah, was on just hormone. Completely changed overnight. Yeah, yeah. Everyone was on Prozac too. I think, but. <laughs> So after a mean of 10.7 years, the use of estrogen alone, and again, conjugated equine estrogen, was associated with a statistically significant 22% lower incidence, lower incidence of breast cancer and all-cause mortality. So, you know, we're going to need to start thinking about risks and benefits when it comes to even our high-risk women. Um, in the Women's Health Initiative study, women with an affected first-degree relative did not have any increase in risk. Um, the, re the relative risk with combined therapy did not vary with family history or benign breast disease. So in, in women with, again, without atypical hyperplasia or LCIS, this is going to be a question going forward. It's also been observed that patients on hormone who develop breast cancer um, have, do better than those who are not on hormone. It's not as aggressive. Um, they have improved survival. Uh, they have more favorable biology. And it, it's just very interesting. There's a lot about, lot about estrogen that we don't understand. And, and in terms of the agents that I described uh, that you know reduce risk for breast cancer that we have all talked about for so long, not, not many people realize that, you know, 11% of women on tamoxifen uh, have elevations in their blood pressure, 10% with anastrozole and 15% with exemestane. Tamoxifen and anastrozole increase cholesterol, raloxifene increases triglycerides, and exemestane reduces your HDL. Um, there is uh, an increase in congestive heart failure in patients studied comparing anastrozole to tamoxifen. And there, there may be some cardiovascular risk that, that we're just not appreciating with these agents, and that, that's not stressed at all. Um, but we also do see uh, arrhythmias and prolonged QT with the use of tamoxifen. So these are interesting things to consider, and I included the references there for the uh, for this table. I couldn't fit it at the bottom, so we can uh, hand that out. So this is another patient who's who's. OBGYN ordered a multi-gene panel, was just kind of ordering them on everyone. And, um, and this patient had five healthy sisters and a paternal cousin with breast cancer in her 50s. Her family history was otherwise unremarkable. And she was found to have a pathogenic variant in BRCA2 and wondered, you know, what should I do? You know, I really, it's hard to really get um, that worked up over this because everyone in my family is generally healthy. Um, she has a very easy to read mammogram, scattered fibroglandular densities. And at her age, you know, at the age of 60, you know, we look at her 
age-adjusted residual risk. Um, I, I'll use asktome.org online, and her residual risk, even with the BRCA2, was no longer 69%, but 42%. And so uh, I offered her participation in the genre two trial because my, my uh, hypothesis was that her polygenic load was very low. Um, similar to the genre one trial, looking at the, um, the likelihood of taking preventive medication with the knowledge of your PRS, um, this was the CAN-RISK model with, in combination with her polygenic risk score, showing that along the bell curve where her estimated risk was 42%, um, her actual risk was much lower, which kind of explains why her family history is so insignificant. Um, we discussed her risks and options, uh, residual risk and the effectiveness of enhanced surveillance, preventive agents and risk reducing mastectomy as an option. And she chose to have enhanced surveillance at least to the age of 75. And she did choose to take raloxifene uh, as it's FDA approved, not only for breast cancer risk reduction, but osteoporosis prevention. And that ran very strongly in her family as well. So prevention of breast cancer is important, even if mortality reduction is, is not yet demonstrated, obviously. Um, we, you know, you can't always use, um, use mortality reduction as an endpoint, um, especially in this situation. But just to review, who benefits the most from the chemopreventive agents that are classic, classically quoted, and I'm excluding now the, the estrogen possibility, those with a Gale model five-year risk of 3% or more, TC 10-year risk of 5% or more, those with atypical hyperplasia or LCIS, and there's some data in patients with prior therapeutic thoracic radiation. I tell patients, don't think of this as a five-year course. Try it for 90 days and see how you do. Send them with a written prescription. Uh, give them the trial papers and consider starting at the lower dose if they're hesitant and then increasing it slowly. I think the ideal starting age for tamoxifen is between 35 and 45. If you start it too close to menopause, they can get a lot of hot flashes and night sweats and give up on the whole thing and never come back to you. Um, for postmenopausal women, wait until the, you know, the menopausal symptoms have subsided. And ideally before age 60, when the blood clot risk starts to increase. I'll also show them how their breast density is decreasing with tamoxifen therapy. Um, again, in, in postmenopausal women who still have their uterus, raloxifene is preferred. But in postmenopausal hysterectomized women, don't forget that tamoxifen has a little more efficacy than the raloxifene. So uh, we obviously tell them about signs and symptoms of blood clots in, with tamoxifen and, and advise them to report any abnormal bleeding. So short-term risk estimates can be used to guide preventive uh, recommendations. And we need to not only include, uh, consider breast cancer risk, but comorbid conditions, including cardiovascular risk in making these decisions with patients. Um, the PRS may ultimately aid women in decisions about acceptance of and adherence to medication and choosing the right patient at the right time are the keys to success. So again, target patients with atypical hyperplasia or LCIS and uh, these five 10-year risks and possibly genetic mutations predisposing to ER-positive tumors, BRCA2, BRCA1 over age 50, CHECK2, ATM, CDH1, and PALP2. So yeah, I'm sorry that we didn't have fantastic. much time for questions. I mean, I'm happy to stay, but we, uh, you know, we got started late because of our, um, our uh, 
Let's call it what it is, because Morgan. Yeah. Moved on. yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, no, uh, that was fantastic, Holly. Thank you. So I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has. Quick <laughs> no, question, Dr. Peterson. Uh, this is Susana with Myriad, and I wanted to ask in your experience what the uptake of chemo prevention drugs is with younger women who are BRCA positive. We're talking about um, maybe women less than 30 years old. So since it wasn't studied in the NSABP P1 trial uh, under 35, I typically don't offer it under age 35. Uh, you know, we give it to patients who develop ER positive breast cancers, you know, under the age of 35, but I don't use it preventively. It almost never gets used preventively in BRCA carriers in the before the age of 50. The BRCA1 carriers will often be uh, childbearing, breastfeeding, childbearing, breastfeeding, and then having, uh, you know, risk-reducing pelvic surgery and going on hormone replacement, precluding the use of tamoxifen. And BRCA2 carriers, sometimes you can get uh, you can get a window after children and before their oophorectomy where you can get a five-year course of tamoxifen in, but I've only had that happen twice. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, it's typically in the, in the gene carrier population, especially those in whom uh, risk-reducing salpingo oophorectomy is recommended. Uh, we put them on hormone until the time of natural menopause uh, and possibly now beyond, given this new American Heart Association uh, data. Um, and that precludes the use of, of tamoxifen mm -hmm. in, those, in those patients. Got it. Thank you. What a great yeah. presentation. Thanks. Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah. No.